You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are going to talk about a topic that can be controversial for many, um, the topic of animal research. And we're going to talk about it very comprehensively, what it is, what it's used for, some of its limitations, future areas of research. So we'll discuss it all. Before we do, just a reminder to go back and check out last week's episode if you haven't already. We spoke with Dr. Manisha Raylan, who is a pediatric allergist. She's an MD, and we talked all about pet allergies. And that's near and dear to Andrea's and my heart as animal lovers who have, let's see, five plus, how many? Uh, 13 tw- total. Yeah, I think 13 there's 13 total. 13 total. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Wow, Andrea, that's impressive. So definitely go back and, and check that out if you haven't already. Um, And so maybe this is a good opportunity to sort of segue into this week's episode because as animal lovers... I think our perspective on animal research is interesting. You know, we do really, again, we, we love animals. We love all animals. This is something that's really, we both feel so strongly about. We're involved in rescue efforts. We're always donating. This is, this is very important to us. But we both, as scientists, do recognize the necessity um, at this point in time of animal research. Would you agree, Andrea? Yeah, yeah. And we've both personally participated in in animal subject research um, for a variety of different research areas, which which we will chat about. We'll, we'll definitely talk about it. And, you know, we know that there are going to be people who, who watch this and are probably very upset with us who feel that all animal research is completely unnecessary, unjustified. And again, we just want to preface it with we do understand that. We want to talk about some of the protection and regulations in place. And while we re- we recognize the necessity from a scientific perspective of animal research, we also advocate for very strict regulation, animal safety, and, and protections in place. And also, you know, we'll talk about this, of course, in more detail, but, you know, the limitations of animal research and why in certain instances it, it may be not necessary. Exactly. So it's not always necessary. And we're moving in a direction. I know we're going to talk about this later on in the pod, some ways, um, some, some alternative models that we could use in place of animal models in certain instances. And obviously as science advances, those alternatives become more, you know, available, but Let's pause. Andrea, do you want to just speak briefly maybe about the animal research you've conducted? Do you think this is a good time to maybe just talk broadly about the work you've done or no? Ultimately, in in my field, you know, immunology, infectious diseases, cancer immunology, you know, we ultimately are always using animal models. Um, the most common animal species that I've worked with is is mice. Um, that's the most popular animal model in certain instances, particularly in the context of certain infectious diseases or vaccine development. We also use non-human primates, um, and that's because of the similarity of the immune system. 
Um, or in the case of something like studying HIV, you have to look for an animal a species that has a similar disease. So in the context of non-human primates, there is um, simian immunodeficiency virus or SIV. So we can actually study that sort of infectious disease and extrapolate some of those data to HIV-based research. And then in cancer, we actually use a lot of genetically engineered mouse models that we can essentially transplant, or we call it xenograft, a tumor or cancer into that mouse model. So it's actually patient or human cancers that we can then put into a mouse that doesn't have a normal immune system. Um, It wouldn't reject the tumor, and we can actually track things like how a cancer would metastasize um, or spread throughout distal parts of the body, which you really can't simulate in uh, a Petri dish. So um, my experience was was different. So uh, back when I was in undergrad and early in my grad school career, I had no clue really what my future direct, you know, did I, did I want to be a physician? Did I want to go into laboratory science and, and research? And so I started interning at a lab in Andrew. I know you know the lab that was very close to where we went to to college. Um, It was a government lab, and um, they were doing all kinds of stuff. But the particular lab that I was in, it was a neuropharmacology lab. And so I, the projects that I was working on, I was working primarily with rats, and we were developing a rat model, a pharmacokinetic model. Basically, we did these surgeries on the rats that would hook a tube up uh, directly into their veins and we would treat them with methylphenidate, which was the uh, the main ingredient in uh, ADHD medication. I believe it's Ritalin is the, the name that most people know it by. And so we would give them different dosages of Ritalin and we would see how that impacted um, their desire for cocaine, self-administration of cocaine. So basically they could hit a lever and that would administer cocaine. And so we did this to, to see whether ADHD medications could potentially be a gateway for future drug use, in particular cocaine. And this is very important. We know that um, children are on ADHD medication, sometimes very high doses of ADHD medication. So are adults. But, you know, there's this concern about giving it particularly in youth and having that impact drug-seeking behavior later in life. And so rat models were important here because obviously it would be unethical to have humans participating in in a trial like this. You know, we're talking about giving different dosages of of methylphenidate and then self-administration of cocaine. This was not something that we could do in humans. We learned a lot from the research. Anyway, we could talk more about this. And Andrea, we both talked a lot about our careers on past episodes. If you want to hear more about that and my experience with that, it sort of turned me off to, to laboratory research and I explored a different field. But it was, you know, and Andrea, I'm sure it was difficult for for me very much so in the beginning to work with rats and you know we did work with them from you know the time that you 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 design the study you you get the rats to the end of the study when you do have to sacrifice the the animals that are in the research Um, and so we have been involved in every step of that process and and again very very difficult for us Andrea maybe now is a good time we shared a little bit about our um, experiences but let's talk about some examples of scientific and medical advancements thanks to animal research, just generally? Yeah, I mean, pretty much everything since 1938 has involved the use of animal research. So this uh, animal models in clinical development of medications, medical interventions, etc., has been required by law by the FDA since 1938. So 
pretty much the development of every vaccine we're currently using, uh, a lot of chemotherapeutics and immunotherapeutics that we use for cancer treatments, a lot of maintenance medications we use for uh, autoimmune disorders or genetic disorders like insulin for type 1 diabetics, for medications to manage the progression of things like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, pharmacologics for epilepsy and other neurologic disorders, you know, of course, all of our modern-day antibiotics, including penicillin, and of course, a lot of early discovery things, so better understanding of neurological pathways, um, you know, how these diseases progress, particularly those that are degenerative over time, so things like Parkinson's and Huntington's and Alzheimer's. Obviously, the COVID vaccines we did preclinical research with. So we use rhesus macaques, um, which are a non-human primate, rats, mice, etc. Ultimately, all of these different types of animal species are utilized for pretty much every pharmaceutical intervention, both over-the-counter, generics, prescription, etc. We owe so much to these to these animals, honestly, because as you said, I mean, all of the, these medications, these treatments have completely altered the, the, the course of history, you know? Um, so just to recap really briefly, so you were talking about things like penicillin, insulin, blood, tra- blood transfusions, treatments for breast cancer, muscular dystrophy, epilepsy, HPV vaccines, anthrax vaccines, COVID vaccines, um, lots, okay. I mean, there's so there's a whole list here that we'll share in our show notes. Um, I thought it was really interesting. There are also things that we learn from animals, like the hair on gecko toes. They inspired modern day medical adhesive. You know, just everything that we've learned from animals. Studies on obesity and longevity. You know, of course, the entire field of veterinary medicine is based on studying animals, and you know, we've learned a lot about how genes are regulated and how embryonic development progresses from even, you know, less organized species like nematodes and zebrafish and things like that. So, I mean, we really do study the organism on a, an entire organism level from the smallest organism, including, you know, single-celled organisms like bacteria, all the way up to mammals. So maybe we should get into, you know, why do we do animal research and how is it that animals serve as models that represent, you know, certain aspects of a particular biological phenomenon. Historically, when we're trying to understand a particular biological phenomenon, we often start with cells in a Petri dish, which are called in vitro studies. And nowadays we have some more complex models for in vitro studies, but historically these were genetically identical cells. We call them uh, monoculture or clonal populations. They're grown in a single layer in a Petri dish with growth factors and food, which we call media. Um, And we can, you know, look at different things, protein production, gene expression, how the cells interact with each other or the rate at which they grow and things like that. But that's just a very small window. And, you know, we talk a lot about how in vitro studies are not indicative of what's happening in an organism with structures and specialized organs and vessels and, you know, different transit pathways and excretory systems and all of these things that metabolize substances that we interact with. And so that's 
ultimately why we then work with non-human animal models. Because of course, jumping from a Petri dish of cells that are genetically identical, many are derived from, um, you know, cancerous cells or things like that. And so they don't necessarily behave as relevantly as a human would, we can kind of bypass or have an intermediate. And so animals serve as kind of this intermediate model. They have discrete cellular structures and functions. They have organ systems. There's a lot of similarities, right? Especially when you're looking at things like even, you know, embryological development, right? They have limb formation. We're looking at how fingers form. We're looking at how the central nervous system develops. But of course, when we're looking at things like cancer, right, we can induce tumor formation in an animal, which again would be unethical to induce tumor formation in a human. Or we're looking at the immune response after vaccination before we then start vaccinating humans. That was a big, um, you know, controversy during COVID. You know, people were accusing us of rushing the vaccines and not testing in animals when we actually did test in animals. And then you have people that are opponents to testing in animals. So, you know, there's there's not a happy medium. But of course, when we use these animals, we can look at these biological processes that share a lot of similarities to humans and be able to extrapolate and interpolate certain types of observations that we can then leverage when we start to apply for clinical trial approvals where we actually would test those things in humans. Right. And Andrea, you know, we we sometimes get frustrated. I know we'll, we'll talk about some of the limitations of animal research, but like you just said, you know, some people, they'll read an animal study or a preclinical study, and then they'll extrapolate to, to humans. And you can't do that. So, you know, yes, there's still a lot of value, but a lot of times the animal research, I mean, I think you just said it, it's a precursor. So remember, all this research requires time, it requires funding, requires resources. And so oftentimes we do these preclinical animal studies to sort of get a, to be hypothesis generating or to to provide the impetus to, to, okay, so look, we found this in rats. Now let's, you know, we need funding to now further study this in humans. And the other really, the thing about animal research, so just going back to the example of what, what I was doing with the rats, with the methylphenidate, we then were able to, once the, the rats were, were sacrificed, we would take their brains and then do neuroimaging. You know, these were things that we could never do, of course, with humans. So it's all a precursor. It's preclinical. It, you know, it precedes the clinical, precedes the human research. And, you know, I think we've talked a lot about there are a lot of different animals that are used. We'll talk about the regulation and how we justify and determine which animals, how how many animals, things like that. But there are certain situations where certain species are chosen for a very specific reason. So for example, as I mentioned, uh, non-human primates are used to study HIV because they have a similar virus in primates called simian immunodeficiency virus or SIV. It's also why cats may be used there because there's a similar virus in cats. It's called feline immunodeficiency virus or FIV. But in other species, there's not a correlate disease. And so it wouldn't be a relevant research model. Um, And so, you know, those are all things that come into play when people are doing different types of research and determining if they need to use animals, which animals, how many animals, and so on. And one other thing I just want to flag as a data scientist is a real strength of animal research is the ability to control 
factors or confounders, confounding variables that we know are likely to affect the outcome of experience. So it's a lot easier to control in an animal study versus a human study, right? And so these can be things like temperature, humidity, light, diet, other medications. I mean, it's it's just a much more controlled setting. The other thing I just wanted to introduce this term, and I don't know if you already said it, but translational research that that comes into play when we're talking about animal um, animal research. So my even- my whole my whole <laughs> research life is translational and clinical research. So, so cool. So though not all research with animal models may result in human treatments. Some of that research just, it helps us build this fundamental knowledge and enhance our understanding of physiological systems. And so this includes research to understand what might contribute to unexpected outcomes within animal research, and then to develop new models of health and disease. So basically in a nutshell, it's you're translating some type of research area from you know, animals to humans. So translational is kind of bridging the gap between animals and humans. So you have a lot of research areas, and this is very common with cancer, that your lab is conducting preclinical with animal samples and also clinical with patient biopsies, tumor samples, et cetera. Now, we have to acknowledge this, and Andrew, I, I, am, I know you're very familiar with this, but there are so many regulations and laws that pertain to animal research and protect the animals that are involved in the research. So let's just talk about this a little bit. And this is a, an amazing, amazing thing because Again, you know, we as animal lovers, you know, of course, we're recognizing that animals are are helping us move science and medicine forward, but you want to make sure that they're being treated as humanely as possible. So the U.S. um, Department of Agriculture, the USDA, has um, several federal regulations that govern the care and use of laboratory animals in biomedical research. And honestly, in many ways, they're even more extensive than those that cover human subjects. So the federal law Um, called the Animal Welfare Act, AWA, sets high standards of care for lab animals with regard to their housing, feeding, cleanliness, ventilation, and medical needs. Um, It also requires the use of anesthesia or analgesic drugs for potentially painful procedures and during post-op care. Um, And most importantly, research institutions are required by law to establish something called an IA. ACUC, which is an Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee, and they oversee all work with animals. And I want to jump in before you talk about IACUC regulations and things like that. These laws, the Animal Welfare Act, also cover um, what's considered, you know, humane euthanasia. And it is very unfortunate that, you know, we do have to sacrifice animals at the end of a study. In some instances, it's really a safety issue, especially if they have an infectious disease or they have cancer and they're suffering, you know, that's that's really, you know, to ensure that they have continuity of quality of life. But even for studies where maybe they're not being treated with something and it's a behavioral study or it's a physiological study or things like that, it's just part of the law guiding animal research. Um, and so, you know, the there are several different options for humane euthanasia. Um, we won't maybe talk about the, the nuance or the granularity of them, but it's to ensure, um, you know, as little suffering as possible, but also doesn't compromise the data that you are collecting post, post-mortem. Because a lot of these animals, we are harvesting tissues and using those for additional studies after the fact. So the, uh, what do you say, IACUC? 
Iacuck. Yeah, we we always call it Iacuck, yeah. I love that. Um, So the Iacucks require, anytime you're doing animal research, there needs to be extensive justification. Why do you need to use animals, okay? And then you need to select the most appropriate species and always use the fewest number of animals possible to answer a specific question. Um, There also needs to be at least one veterinarian and at least one community representative unaffiliated with the institution. These committees have the authority to reject any research proposal and stop a project if they believe it has failed to meet proper standards. Yeah. So for example, when you're justifying the number of animals you need, if you're comparing different groups or different treatments, you have to factor in the fewest number of animals possible to have statistically relevant data. Um, And so that's why looking at study design is very important and obviously not in excess. And, um, you know, all of these animals are housed in an animal facility, typically on site, wherever the research is being done. And those animal facilities, they also ensure that like there's only a certain number of mice per cage. If you're talking about mice or rabbits per cage, there's X number of veterinarians per number of animals. They have um, very stringent feeding guidance and things like that. Even for animals that you're doing some sort of like investigative study on where say you're I did a lot of infectious, you know, infection studies. So I would have to infect animals with different pathogens. Um, So you would have infected groups, um, uninfected groups, different controls. um, And then, you know, you would have different time points. So if you needed to sacrifice a group at, 24 hours or 48 hours or, you know, a month later, you needed to have enough animals in each separate group to ensure that you're not needlessly harming animals. You're not needlessly putting animals through suffering because your data is going to be completely unusable at the end. You know, Andrea, I'm, I just want to say, I want to just take a pause for a second and sort of acknowledge that we've had other Psycom folks basically warn us about talking about this topic altogether. I think you know what I'm talking about. And I just, I, I think it's important that we talk about these things with transparency. And so um, I'm, I'm really, ha- I think this is an important episode because these, these things are happening. And um, I think it's important people understand how and why they're happening. Um, I just wanted to talk briefly. There, there is also another um, federal law, the U.S. Public Health Service Act, PHS. It requires that all institutions that receive research funds from the NIH, the FDA, or the CDC adhere to the standards set out in the guide for the care and use of laboratory animals. Again, it's all about just detailed animal care recommendations and establishing the IACUC um, to ensure that all animals are treated responsibly and humanely. Um, just really, really briefly, I, I we're going to link to this, but the NIH, obviously, um, they, they do animal research. Um, and so just wanted to share that in every NIH-funded activity involving live vertebrate animals, they must describe in their NIH application exactly, um, you know, how is this scientifically important, hypothesis-driven, and relevant to public health? Again, you know, specific animals, how many will be involved, and why they're selected, why the specific animal is appropriate, a complete description of all procedures that will be performed, how any potential discomfort, distress, injury, and pain will be minimized, why the study cannot be done using another model or approach, and then, of course, research findings and outcomes and their potential benefits. And as someone who has written NIH, you know, grants um, for funding for these types of studies, I can assure you that this part of 
it, the IACUC justification and, and animal use, it's extensive. I mean, you, it's line by line. You know, you talk about, so for example, we did intradermal infections in some instances and in other instances, um, we would do other, other routes. You'd have to describe exactly how you're administering. In this case, these were live pathogens, but how you're administering them, what the infectious dose is, how they're being sedated to administer, you know. So every single step of your entire research protocol, but even beyond that, every single step of how the animal is involved with your research protocol. So it's, there's a lot of thought given into this. And certainly like, it's never fun to work with animals, but every effort is made to ensure that they are humanely treated throughout the whole, you know, the whole process ultimately. Now, Andrea, there was an amendment, right? Do you, do you want to talk about how the FDA? Yes, it? yes. Okay. So, so as I mentioned, the FDA required by law since 1938 that in order to move a a medical intervention to clinical trials for ultimate FDA approval, there had to be a preclinical animal model involved. And actually, as of January of this year, there was an amendment to the, the law. And so the new there's a new stipulation that basically um, FDA allows certain research studies to bypass the, the animal use. So there are now instances or there will be instances in the future where animal research is no longer required. And so ultimately that this is going to apply to um, mostly drugs or biologics. So these are going to be things like immunotherapies that are using antibody-based treatments that if there's a, a valid alternative non-animal research model that can be utilized to study efficacy, safety, et cetera, toxicology, um, they can actually utilize that in place. And so this has obviously been something that a lot of animal welfare groups and other people have been really advocating for for years. But until recently, there really wasn't a good way to bypass this. However, with technology advancements, um, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that, but we've been able to generate like mini organs in vitro or organ on a chip that we call them. There's also really, really robust and comprehensive data modeling software now that we can model on computers and then also other sorts of non-animal kind of in vitro models that, that really have kind of accelerated in the last decade, decade and a half. And so this really wasn't probably on the table until really recently, but now with a lot of these more complex research models that we can utilize that may in some instances be even more physiologically relevant, um, the FDA is no longer requiring animal testing um, before before every clinical trial. And this is really important because historically, you know, there were toxicology tests um, where we had to say that these were safe. We know that the metabolism and the pharmacologics of a variety of compounds are not necessarily physiologically relevant, particularly in mice and rat, um, but they also typically required non-rodent species such as non-human primates or dogs or cats. And in order to do these toxicology studies, we did have to use large numbers of animals. But there's a high rate of failure in clinical trials. 90% of drugs that enter clinical trials fail, either because they're just not effective based on human data, or um, in some instances, they, they may have a, a lower safety profile. And so 
you know, there there is um, there's some truth to this, right? You know, animal models are not always right. They're not always indicative of what's happening in a human. And that's true for in vitro Petri dish studies as well. And so there has been a very big push to develop more physiologically relevant in vitro models using things like patient samples or human-derived samples where we can mimic what's happening in a full human, but in a Petri dish in a more safe system, but more toxicologically relevant than what you would see in a rodent, for example. So this, this is the perfect segue into discussion of, you know, limitations of animal research. And so exactly as you just said, you know, especially when it comes to toxicologic testing, you know, there's not always a, 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 a perfect translation from animal to human, especially when we're talking about rodent to human. Also, you know, public opinion plays a really key role in determining how animal research is funded and regulated. I think this is important to acknowledge as well. And we know that public opinion polls have been done in the U.S. and in Europe, and we see a steadily growing unease among the public sector for use of animals in industrial and pharmaceutical toxicity testing. And so let's just see. So between 1990 and 2015, the number of published papers using alternative animals, so things like insects, fish, worms, and shrimp, and I don't know what this is, but you probably do, in silico analysis increased over 900%. In 2015, more than 88,000 studies were published using in silico modeling um, versus just 7,000 in 1990. And then- Yeah, so, yeah. so maybe I'll jump. So in yeah. silico testing is 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 really relating to to computer based modeling. So you're looking at you're looking at the x-ray crystallography or the structure of a given compound and you're using computer modeling blasting against a whole other, you know, thousand point database of relevant or related um, compound structures, chemical structures, and predicting how this compound is going to be metabolized and how it's going to um, interact with cells in our body. Um, and so obviously with the advancement of computer technology, we now have more resources to do those sorts of studies. So did you want to talk about immune system differences? Yeah, so I mean, I, I want to just mention, you know, one of the biggest limitations with animal studies, and this is something that we've actually talked about quite a bit with a lot of these debunked topics, is that, again, the metabolism, the excretory system, the way that their cells interact with certain compounds are very different. And so, you know, especially when we talked about things like artificial colors, artificial sweeteners, you know, people are like, well, in rats, they cause cancer. And it's like, well, well, yeah, I mean, first of all, the doses that are given in animal research are not the same at which a human would encounter in real life. And the reason for that is because you have to look at these extremes to say, okay, well, even if a human OD'd on sucralose, you know, nothing harmful would occur. So so a lot of these animal species are given doses that are thousands of fold higher than what would be a comparable dose in humans. And so you can't take the data that are found from something like that and say, oh, well, this is going to cause cancer in humans. Because first of all, it's not the same toxicology profile. It's not being metabolized in the same way. And also these doses are not physiologically relevant. And that's really, I think, the biggest reason to maybe shift away from animal research because of these limitations. And of course, these studies are often co-opted by people who want to propagate chemophobia and fear-based marketing to really, you know, scare people away from, from things that are actually quite safe. I mean, 
if you look at a lot of early discovery cancer biology papers, you know, you can cause cancer in an animal with almost everything. I mean, cinnamon, which is viewed by most as benign or even in some instances probably beneficial, can cause cancer in an animal if you give them a high enough dose. Oh, Andrea, that was such an important point to make. So, you know, there are some instances where we actually, you know, we've talked a lot about there's a whole array of different animal models, particularly in mice and rats. We have genetically modified models, which are used as a more physiologically relevant intermediate before going to clinical studies. And these are typically genetically modified to uh, knock in a gene, meaning introduce a human gene or knock out a gene that that is as a correlate in an animal. So we can study the impact of that gene on disease progression or the impact on that gene in how a treatment would respond. And this is very common with cancer research in particular, but other, other things as well, like neurodegenerative disorders. So there's a lot of different mouse models out there, and I won't go too much into detail, but these are typically um, called genetic engineered mouse models or transgenic mouse models, meaning they have trans genes. They're expressing a gene of a different species. Um, and also what we call PDX models. So these are patient-derived xenograft models. So these are mice that um, can essentially be implanted with a graft of a human tumor. And so these mice, the backbone of these mice are based on mice with their immunocompromised or they're immunosuppressed. And, and that's to ensure that we can get a human gene or a human tumor to successfully implant so we can track how the tumor may spread in a whole organism, which is not something you can necessarily do in a Petri dish. So these would be things called uh, nude mice. Nude mice don't have a thymus, so they don't make T cells properly. Skid mice, which are um, severely uh, severe compromised immunodeficient mice. But there's a lot of other mice mouse models out there, including um, mice called balbsi mice. These historically present, or they have a phenotype of being albino, and they have a, a TH2 immune profile compared to a C57 black mouse. And then there's a, a whole other array of mice, including things like C3H mouse. But the important thing to understand is that factoring in what type of mouse model you're using, if you are using a mouse model, also factors in differences in the immune system. And so what was very interesting for me, um, because I studied, one of my first research projects was studying Lyme disease. And so Lyme disease, it infects humans as an endpoint. It's It's a a terminal infection, it cannot propagate its life cycle. So the bacteria that cause Lyme disease live in certain species of ticks, and they um, they establish a reservoir in white-footed mice in the wild, also deer, certain birds, and so on. And in white-footed mice, they don't cause physical illness. But if that bacteria gets into humans or, or dogs or other species, it can cause uh, physical illness. And so it's really important to understand the limitations of that when you're creating an animal model because if they don't have the same immune response to a particular pathogen or particular bacteria, it might not be giving you useful information. And so we do have to understand that there are a lot of similarities in the immune system amongst different species and humans, but there are also some critical differences. And that's also something that we factor in when we're determining if we need animals and which animals we would be using. So let's shift gears and talk about some controversies surrounding animal research. And this is putting aside the, you know, the more obvious, you know, we know that organizations like, you know, PETA and other um, animal rights groups are opposed to any sort of research involving um, animals. 
animals. But and I'm not going to get into some of the issues with PETA here. But um, okay, I, I, I was scared to even say the word PETA. <laughs> I know there's a lot there. We'll talk. We're not going to use. We're not going to. We're not going to use PETA as a benchmark. But yes, I mean there are there are um, animal welfare concerns broadly. But but you know even though there are regulations, there are always bad actors, right? Exactly. I mean it's just it's inevitable. Exactly. And I just said PETA because they've they've been vocal. I'm not saying that they're the the benchmark. Certainly not the benchmark. People are like, what's going on with PETA? But we'll talk about that another time. All right. So um, one case was in November of 2021. There was an operation in Cumberland, Virginia that supplied beagles for animal research. They were formerly owned by Invigo, since acquired by Innotive. I'm probably saying all this wrong. But they were cited for dozens of violations of the Animal Welfare Act. Um, basically, USDA inspectors came by and they found dozens of wounded, sick, and suffering animals at the operation and records of hundreds of puppy deaths uh, that had gone uninvestigated. And so this um, this prompted an entire, uh, you know, a crackdown and an investigation. There was an injunction. Long story short, thankfully, the site was shuttered and closed. And I'm hoping that there was criminal action taken against the people who ran the facility, but I'm honestly not not entirely sure. But as you said, Andrea, you know, sometimes there are bad actors. Thankfully, the USDA inspectors came in when they did and the operation was was immediately shut down. Um, I think you wanted to give another example. Yeah, we'll give another example. This is this is less on an animal supplier and more on a research side. Um, and, and mostly because he's been quite prominent in the news. But Mehmet Oz, also known as Dr. Oz, um, you know, during his failed Senate run for Pennsylvania Senate, it, it came out that he had actually violated numerous animal welfare laws during his clinical history. So um, 75 studies that he was listed as the principal investigator on between the years of 1989 and 2010, that he had violated numerous animal welfare laws. His research had needlessly killed hundreds of dogs and inflicted suffering on them and other animals using experiments. As a principal investigator, and he was he was previously held faculty appointment at Columbia um, in the Institute of Comparative Medicine. When you're a principal investigator, you have the full administrative and fiscal responsibility for conduct of your research, including animal care and use. And so um, it found out that he had performed experiments on over a thousand live animal subjects, including dogs, pigs, calves. Um, rabbits, small rodents. Um, 34 of these studies resulted in the needless deaths of over 300 dogs. Um, he killed over 30 pigs and um, killed over 600 rabbits and rodents. In addition to that, because we, of course, talked about humane euthanasia, and yes, we, there is a need for animal research, but beyond that, he treated or or performed procedures that led to adverse events, things like lethargy, vomiting, paralysis, kidney failure, but they were not humanely euthanized for several days. A whistleblower also noted that the um, the cruel treatment of the dogs was gratuitous, even, um, you know, basically dogs that were being kept alive, even though they they were not, they were outliers of data collection and they could not be used for data. They also noted that um, puppies were being killed by intracardiac injection without sedation, using expired medications. It also noted that the dogs were left in a garbage bag. So again, even disposal of of euthanized animals is highly regulated. And, and these apparently were not. They were left in a garbage bag along 
other puppies that were still alive. Oh my um, god. This so is it's sick. really yeah, it's really grotesque. Um obviously this one came out because he was such a public public profile. And and ultimately in 2004, he was ordered by the USDA and Columbia I think it was Columbia University was ordered by the USDA to pay a fine of $2000 for violating the Animal Welfare Act, but in my opinion this is, you know, far too little, you know, for something like this. So, you know, I think we want to use this to underscore the fact that yes, there are laws, yes, there are guidelines. Yes, not everybody is going to follow this, but I think generally most scientists and researchers are trying to do what's absolutely right and what's in the best interest of the animals and the research, but not to discount there are bad players out there. Yeah, I'm sure that, I mean, I'm horrified. I, I, we're both horrified, obviously. It's beyond sick. And I'm sure that the people who are listening to this are like, oh my gosh, how many other cases are, you know, are, are there of this? And it sort of undermines the integrity. Like, you know, it's, we're saying that there is real value in this and we've had incredible medical and scientific advancements, but then you have these bad players that sort of, you know, spoil it and ruin it for everyone because this is completely unacceptable. And this, this is not, this, this is, yeah, this is beyond horrific. I don't even have words for it. So we've got these guidelines. We're, tr you know, FDA is no longer requiring for biologics. So what can we do instead? So there are a lot of new technologies that that I've actually been personally involved in using, and they have a lot of promise. So the, the biggest thing, um, of course, is computer modeling. So we have a lot of computer technology, so computational mathematical models. We can do a lot of toxicology prediction or toxicity predictions based on that. But the biggest thing is we've developed these more complex tissue culture models that we call 3D culture. So um, we, we sometimes call them organ on a chip where we can generate like mini organs in culture and they actually have more structure and function than just cells. Um, we often also utilize what we call patient-derived organoids. So this is kind of the next step beyond the, the PDX model in a mouse where we can actually take a patient biopsy of their actual tumor and we can generate little mini tumors in petri dishes that have the same cell populations they have the same heterogeneity in like nutrients and oxygen gradients they actually express the same genes of the actual cancer in the patient and we can utilize those to actually screen for efficacy of compounds and that's really where this field of personalized medicine is moving toward and for that you just need a small sample of of their tumor Tumor and you can generate these organoids in culture. We're doing a lot of stem cell research where we can actually take stem cells from bone marrow or, or from other, we can actually induce stem cells from adult cells on things like keratinocytes, and we can force them to differentiate into all the different cells in our body. So we can utilize those to better understand disease processes. And then of course, we have a lot of advancements in, in diagnostic imaging. So PET scans and EEGs and other sorts of imaging to get better information from whole people without having to do invasive procedures. So the NIH, there's an entire, you know, arm of the NIH that's really specifically looking to support efforts to what they call the three R's, replace, reduce, and refine the use of animal models in, in the studies that they conduct. And exactly as Andrea just said, you know, we're talking about testing cells and tissues and test tubes or cell cultures, 3D tissue cultures. Andrea, you said um, organs on a chip. 
computational and mathematical models, stem cell research, non-invasive diagnostic imaging, and then, you know, when possible, doing clinical research involving people. But of course, you know, there, there are certain ethical limitations that prohibit that um, from happening in all instances. I'm sorry, Andrea, keep going. You were, you were no, no, that, that, that was, yeah. that was pretty much it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think the big, the big takeaway is, you know, technological advancements in the biotech industry is really allowing us to now be at a point where we can move away from animal research. There are certainly going to be situations where we still do need to use animals. And in those instances, it will be justified and they'll be humanely treated. And we still have those laws and regulations in place. But it's actually a really exciting time to be in the biological sciences because we have a lot of these novel cell culture um, models available that allow us to do, you know, the same sort of cutting edge research. It's also a lower cost to companies than housing and caring for animals. Um, you know, so that's a big draw for companies to move away from from animal research as well. Before you take us home, and I know we're way over time, can I just take 30 seconds to tell one story? I debated sharing this, but it's been over a decade, so hopefully I can't get in trouble. But so when I was doing this animal research, we had um, received the, the shipment of rats that were to be included in this study that I was doing. And one of the rats was clearly, he was the runt of the litter. He was far smaller than the other rats. And by using him in the experiment, it would have skewed the results, right? Because that would have introduced another, another variable. And so the advice that I received from my PI um, was to euthanize this rat. He couldn't have been used in, in the research. But as someone who's a runt myself, um, I was like, there's no way that I'm doing this. You know, that nothing had happened to this rat yet. He had not been involved in, in any sort of anything. So what I did was I snuck into the lab really late at night and I snuck him out of the lab and I brought him back to my dorm room. And my Brain room- was so cute. You Do you remember, I remember Brain? Yeah. Well, so he was originally bad. Ben, but my roommate, when I had him, well, Ben, because there was the movie and then there was the song with Michael Jackson. I hope someone knows what I'm talking about. But my roommate at the time, you know who, she was not a fan <laughs> of Ben. And so then our other friend adopted him and he became, all right, he's brain. <laughs> there was there was this picture of you and I don't know if it still exists, but you're holding him up and you're he's pressed against your face and his huge balls are just hanging down. <laughs> so if you guys don't know, rats have enormous, hamsters I mean, most rodents, they have huge balls. And it's like Jess and brain and then the, these balls. I can't believe that you remember this. I am flooded with memories. I have to find this photo. If I find it, that's going to go on our stories. I I don't think I could get in trouble for this now. Uh, I, I feel like the statute of limitations has probably it's, passed. It's passed, right? Okay. Um, he was very sweet. <laughs> but I thought it'd be nice to end on a, on a happy note there. So so there you go. Um, Andrea, you want to take us home? Yeah. <laughs> so happy note, Jess broke the law, smuggled a rat out of the lab. Um, we saved one. He was an adorable albino <laughs> rat and... Yeah. Thanks for tuning in today. We know this is a little bit of a, a controversial topic, but it is something that, you know, we want to try and talk about all things of science. So we do hope you learn a thing or two. And if you want more unbiased science, please check out our Substack subscription. Um, it's $5 a month. It helps support our efforts and it gives you access to our monthly Q&As and our private Facebook group. So it is available at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. And please make sure to subscribe to our YouTube. We're now recording video. Even if you're 
not watching the pod on YouTube, subscribing helps. It's free. It takes three seconds. It's youtube.com at unbiasedscipod. Of course, we will still be active on our social media accounts, providing tons of other science and health-related content. So follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at unbiasedscipod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no-nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.